let's see. That is not the intro. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you help us understand the truth about you through your word today. You have given us this in clarity and have intended it for our instruction, for our correction, and for our soul's encouragement. So, Father, we pray that by your Spirit you would open our eyes to the wonderful things from your word through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray it in his name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you and ask you to open it to the book of Daniel, chapter 10, the book of Daniel, chapter 10. We recorded last week's message on a Wednesday night, Daniel chapter 9, 1 through 19, and I honestly went home that night incredibly relaxed. Uh, The end of every preacher's sermon is the best five or ten minutes of their week because the burden is off, but they know that the next week starts almost immediately. But on the way home, I was driving home with all the pressure relieved from my shoulders, whistling songs, chill as I've ever been, and looking forward to going to bed early that night. But it's amazing how an hour can change things. I don't know if you've ever had the thrill of seeing water come from the baseboards in your house, but that's what I got to experience about an hour after I got home last evening. It has its own level of emotion. On the other side of our shower is a tiny hallway, and water was coming out of the baseboards. So relaxed was I no more. The past week for many of you have, has provided its own level, though, of, well, letdown, where harsh challenges and changes of the normal have fully taken place. My water problem is little compared to many people's situations that they find themselves in, that we all find ourselves in as a church. I can always shut the water off to my house to stop something from spreading, but in the past week, I've gotten phone calls from people where someone's sister was just diagnosed with cancer, or another person's wife was going for yet another checkup on a cruel cancer's progress, and another single mother is now jobless because of the quick turn of the economy. Any sort of financial padding we may have seen ourselves having maybe three months ago now only looks like a chart that keeps going down and never may come up. The everyday actions we seamlessly make, uh, dropping the kids off for school, going to the park with friends, or even going up to any counter in any store that we go in, we just have to tell ourselves what what a week has been. Do you ever wonder if you can know what God is up to in all of this? Do you ever want him to answer that question when you might cry out at night, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Do you ever wish he would pull back the curtain and show you the rest of the story? Well, in the midst of Daniel's own life, we see him doing this. There, there he encountered terrific occurrences of, of rising and falling and popularity. There he encountered haunting visions delivered to him from the Lord or the Lord's angels. And so he's wondering, how does he make sense of all of this? What are these incredible apocalyptic pictures that are, that are showing themselves to him? What's really going on in his own life? 
Well, in Daniel chapter 10, we get a large answer to that question. We have a, we have a final, final vision that concludes this book. Though many verses long, I'll be preaching from chapter 10 all the way through the first half of chapter 12, it's one literary section. That's why I'm taking it as a whole. It's one vision that Daniel has been given from the Lord. This vision emphasizes to him and to us an, an unseen reality, something that's going to occur in an amazing fashion like the others. It's presented to him. But there's more here than meets the eye, and to some degree, that's a point to Daniel. There's more going on in God's perspective than than we could ever handle on our own. There's something behind the curtain that God will give him a small glimpse of. So we encounter, though, right right at the beginning in verse 2, a mourning Daniel. Daniel, who's mourning because he's been praying for weeks and weeks. Look at verse 2 if you have copy of the Bible. Verse 2, it says, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself for three weeks, meaning he didn't bathe for three weeks. It's interesting that God doesn't have much to say to carefree people or passive, silly men, but rather it seems that throughout the Scriptures, he encounters, for the sake of their own benefit, Those who are desperately crying out to him, and Daniel is another case where this shows itself. For centuries, he has been knowing that something was going to come. And in his own life, it seems like testimony was raining down on him of what God is aiming to do through God's people. And throughout this large text, we see incredible instruction for us as much as it was an incredible instruction for Daniel. God is pulling back the curtain for his people to see his wondrous works. He's pulling back the curtain to show us another glimpse of his glory and how we can change through it. So there are several things that I hope this text will present itself to you. And the first one is this. God's people have hearts for God's people. One of the things that is clear from these couple of chapters is that God's people, meaning you and me, God's people, if we're one of God's own, We have hearts for God's people. The setting of this passage is in the first three verses of Daniel. Here God shows us that he wants us to have a big heart for God's people. Daniel's own heart is shown here with all of these detailed verses. He's still in Babylon. It's not where he wants to be, but he's still there and he's fasting. But he's not just fasting at any old time. He's fasting during the feast days. So a time where it should have been eating a lot and drinking all of the good things. He is not a part of the parties that God's people would have had, but he is fasting. Why is he praying? Why is he fasting? Why wasn't he back in Jerusalem? Well, we we have clues from other parts of the Old Testament in Ezra and Nehemiah where, where God is already beginning to rebuild his temple. And he's using other people as leaders to rebuild his temple. Yet, yet for us, we see that Daniel is not there. It's so, so it seems, maybe I think, so it seems that the best thing for Daniel in his own life was to pray for the expansion in the increased glory of God's kingdom, even though he might not realize what it will look like on the other side. Now, this is a tremendous thing for us to grasp onto. Sinclair Ferguson comments on this passage where he says, 
what these leaders needed most, meaning what the leaders who were going to rebuild the temple, what these leaders needed most as God had needed before through the person of Moses was someone who would engage in the hidden but strategic work of prayer for the defense and the advancement of God's kingdom. There are people behind the scenes who God is using by their prayer and through their prayer for the expansion of the kingdom. Now, to be honest, this may not be the only reason or even a major reason why Daniel is not back in Jerusalem. Maybe not even a major reason, though his posture for God's glory to be shown is far beyond his own presence with people, though it doesn't keep him from praying for people and for the expansion of the kingdom. He was praying for the people of God, and he was praying for the protection and the blessing of the work of the kingdom to go out. This was where an angelic visitor would show up. I think he's just praying, but, or I think he's not only praying, but also fasting because of he's being used by God for the sake, but also he recognizes that there is great opposition towards the Israelites. There were powerful forces against the Israelites' building efforts. People didn't want Israel to rebuild the temple. People didn't want God's people to do anything. And even there would be some within God's fold who might have been hesitant out of the hard work or is this one going to be torn down too. There's great opposition towards the rebuilding of the temple. So Daniel prays for the Lord's work to continue even through this harsh opposition. His prayer is not only practical, but it's also sacrificial. He's not there as a part of it. He's devoted to God being worshipped, God's glory to be extended, even at the cost of his own well-being. Remember, he's far away from God's people. But also his comfort. Remember what fasting is and what praying so much that you forget about what night is or what dinner might be. He probably wouldn't even see the outcome, but he shows us what true faith and what true commitment for God's glory actually look like. He's believing in the very promises of God, even at the cost of his own comfort. He prayed for the blessing that he would never wind up seeing. Friends, I don't want to be overly dramatic here, and I don't want to, I don't want to over-apply this text. I don't want to make it into something that it's not. But what if we used our time in our homes, away from the regular Sunday gatherings, to pray for the increase of God's glory, not only in sanctifying us, but in the extension of more people knowing who he is through our church. What if the fruit of our prayers on Sunday mornings when we can't gather together in this room, what if the fruit of our prayers this day are realized just 70 years from now when you and I most likely won't be around? I think these type of prayers, thinking decades ahead, centuries ahead from Enid MB, I think they're incredibly worth it. Just because we don't see each other or feel each other or know that we're around each other, just because we're only a phone call away, that doesn't mean that God wants us to not be amongst each other, not be praying for another, not be fighting for and alongside one another. You and I are the spiritual products of other people's prayers. Think about it. Do you know the very prayers that your grandmothers or grandfathers prayed for you? Probably not, but here we'll someday all sit again as testimonies of their prayers. So are you the prayerful products of other people's prayers? And might you be, for generations to come, 
the prayer warriors on their behalf. God's people have hearts for God's people, we see from this text. Second, God continually shows his greatness and his faithfulness by presenting who he is through angelic figures to Daniel. In verses 4 through 9, a heavenly visitor shows up, and it's here that God wants us to see God's greatness and God's faithfulness shown. Daniel received a vision from the Lord, and whatever the particulars of this vision might mean, so remember in reading giant, um, bizarre, apocalyptic passages, we want to major on the majors and not dwell so tightly on the minors. This vision we know clearly aims in part to show the very power and the gloriousness and the strength of the Lord for and to his own people. There are two prominent things that we see in just this part of the passage. Look at verse 5, where it says, I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold. Linen was the high priest's clothing as he would enter the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement to offer the sacrifice for the forgiveness of the sins. Daniel sees here a faithful forgiveness, or he sees here the the very faithful forgiveness of God shown to him. In response to his confessing, to his lamenting, to his longing for God's glory to be shown and also to be around God's people, God reveals to him a vision of a man in linen like a priest, showcasing forgiveness that is purchased by God and for his people. Notice in verse 6, You're told that one of the things that he sees is the appearance of the man. His face had the appearance of, look there, lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. And again, lightning is a biblical symbol always indicating power and glory. Lightning is a symbol often for the very coming of the Lord in the prophets of the Old Testament. So this here ought to remind us, ought to show us, a bit of God's own faithfulness. Most definitely his glory and his power and his majesty. When Daniel sees the lightning, he recalls the faithfulness of God coming for his people. The strength of greatness and faithfulness in this passage is just glowing off the charts. And by reminding Daniel of his past greatness and his continual faithfulness, God is, even in this text, and very much to us today, regardless of the situation that you might find yourself, he is encouraging Daniel to trust in him, even in bleak times. And he does this not by focusing on the state of Daniel, but by revealing the mere character and glory of himself. Knowledge of God's grace in the past always encourages his people to trust him with the future. If we forget the past, we often worry about the very future, don't we? If we forget about how good God has been to us in our lives, tomorrow seems dark. But if we remember the grace that he extended to us in days past or years past, the mercy that he gave us when we didn't deserve any of it, it makes tomorrow a little bit easier to wake up to, doesn't it? I'm often encouraged by people who tell me what life was like in their spiritual life decades ago what the church was like for them when they grew up inside of it, or what they were like before they became a Christian, and then what happened to them after they became a Christian. And that that fuels them and helps them fight against their sin and for God's glory every single day. We ought to be remembering people and reminding people. God in this text shows 
his continual greatness and faithfulness to Daniel. This picture shows the presence of God to a longing soul where God draws close to Daniel, even even sending a messenger to him, where Daniel was once standing firm, we might say, even though he was fasting and weeping and mourning. Once standing firm, he went to a person who was trembling and then prostrate on the floor and then unconscious because he saw the very glory of God. When wanting to know what in the world is happening and why in the world it is happening, we see that God continually shows his greatness and faithfulness again and again throughout the scriptures and most marvelously in this text. Third, we see that God shows the bigger battle. God draws back the curtain a little bit on what is truly going on, not just in the world, but also what can't be seen with Daniel's own eyes. Third, in chapter 10, God shows the bigger battle at play. Daniel always thought beyond himself. He's never really shown to us as someone who is preoccupied with his own life. He, he longs for the well-being of others, and he also wants to see the bigger picture. He wants to be included in all of God's work, not just in his own life, but in other people's as well. And in our passage, God has Daniel actually stretch the very boundaries of his ideas. There's something bigger than merely returning to the promised land. Daniel wanted to go back to the promised land, but God is showing him again and again through these visions, there's something bigger at play and there's something more glorious and marvelous for Daniel and his people. There is a physical battle going on and Daniel can see that, but there is also a spiritual battle going on. The angel reveals that Daniel was praying that God would thwart the king of Persia's rule. But the angel there actually reveals to Daniel that he has been battling an angelic king of Persia. Unseen principalities and powers he's also at war with. There's a physical and spiritual battle going on that often can't be seen by our own mere eyes. And now Daniel is shown or given a peek at this very spiritual battle. And it's enormous. There's a story of Francis Schaeffer witnessing to a young man in St. Louis where he's wanting to stress to this young man that that there's more than meets the eye to our lives. There's actually something spiritual inside of all of us. There's a spiritual war happening, and we have to take that into account as well. They sat together in the Bible Presbyterian Church of St. Louis, and Schaeffer began to ask him, "What what do you see in this room? Just name some of the things that you see. And the man, of course, responded with, I see a hymnal, I see a pew, I see a baptistry, I see windows. And Schaefer kept asking him, yeah, but what else do you see? And he kept naming things until finally Schaefer would ask, yeah, but are there other things that you see here? And he would go, I've named everything I can see in this room. To where Francis Schaefer replied, well, let me tell you what I see. I see powers and principalities. I see spiritual forces above engaged in a war for your very soul. There's a battle of good and evil that's occurring that we may not even see, but is very much there. He wanted to stress the reality of everyone's spiritual condition and all of the spiritual conflict that's going on around us and towards us. We're often wondering what God is up to, aren't we? We, we very much fill our prayers with These are the things I desire. These are the things where I've fallen short of. But also in the meantime, what are you doing? How is this all supposed to make sense to me? 
We look around and see kings and kingdoms rise and fall. We see markets go up and markets go down. We walk into a workplace and wonder, is it going to be there a month from now? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says that, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We often can get caught up in the things that we can see. And here, this angelic being is pointing Daniel's attention to the very work of God. It's mighty, it's large, and it's a battle on man's behalf. God shows the bigger battle. But what we see here in Daniel is that he not only shows the battle, but he shows the victor too. Fourth, the future battles of God's people. Number four, the thing that we see in these two and a half chapters is fourthly, the future battles of God's people. Chapter 11 is massive. Not only in its size, there's a lot of verses in there, so if you were going to read it out loud, take some time. It'll take you a while. But also it's massive in the amount of detail. H.C. Leopold, after writing a commentary on the book of Daniel, said, how could someone ever preach from this chapter? I read that today. I wouldn't have put it, I wouldn't have even tried had I not seen it until today. John Calvin, the great reformer, devoted 150 pages of lectures just to chapter 10, 11, and part of 12. Just those two and a half chapters. 150 pages of lecture notes. Now, if you were to go to seminary and just take classes for a whole semester for one class, you might have 50 to 75 pages worth of notes. And here, on just chapter 11, John Calvin gave 100 pages worth of notes. The others didn't even get 25, but this one got a whole 100 pages worth of notes. So let me try to outline this chapter in whole in three quick parts. Part number one is in verses 2 through 4. These uh, three verses set the stage for the vision. So catch this. The whole reason God revealed this to Daniel, the whole reason God revealed all of this prophecy, this apocalyptic prophecy to Daniel, was to move Daniel's heart towards prayer for Daniel's people. The whole reason all of this was being revealed to Daniel was to move his heart towards prayer. God wanted to expand Daniel's horizon and basically say, Daniel, there's more at play than you'll ever see. Your prayers are big, but I want them to be even bigger. God shows Daniel what is going to happen to Israel after they return to the land. So that's the first part of chapter 11. Part two is verses 5 through 35. Verses 5 through 35. Basically, this records this records the story of the conflict between Syria, which would be the land of the north, or the people of the north, and the king of Egypt, or the kingdom of the south. The, the text keeps referring to the, the things in the north and the things in the south, so just think Syria and Egypt. And it also includes what happens to the very people of God who are stuck in the middle, we could say, amongst all this conflict from competing kingdoms. In verses 2 through 4, you're looking at history. So if you pick up a history book, you're looking at history from the perspective of God's eyes. Now in verses 5 through 35, you're looking at history from the perspective of the very people of Israel or the land of Israel. So notice the hectic travel schedule in this text. You can just write down some of these notes. It's first the northern king heading through Israel down to the south to attack the king of the south. 
And then we'll see that the kingdom of the south heads through Israel back to the kingdom of the north to wreak havoc or attack them. But then next, it's the king of the south and the king of the north not being able to attack who they want to attack. So it's the very people of Israel who just get caught up in all of this. I can't pick on you, so I'm going to pick on someone that I can pick on. Kings are inflicting havoc on Israel as they're trying to build their own kingdoms. The lesson there is that conflict in human history is both often related to us and has nothing to do with us. But we're still stuck in the chaos. You know, one of the things that's making this pandemic more real to everyone is that everyone is somehow involved with it. We all breathe air. We're, we're all of a certain age in a certain demographic that makes us vulnerable towards something. It's not like the financial market crash of 2008 and 2009 where that was isolated to a certain industry or an energy crash of different times in our own county's history or, or ag prices going up and down. All of us are a part of this and we're just sometimes caught up in the middle of this. The lesson here is that the conflict of human history is both related and unrelated to God's people, but what God is showing the, the very prophet of Daniel is that there is something larger going on that is for the benefit of God's own people. So it's clear in this passage that what is occurring or what is about to occur to God's people are very persecuting acts against God's people. People will die because of the enemy that's coming for them. And it's clear in this passage that the persecutions which happen to the people of God are designed, catch this, to refine the people of God, to make the people of God more holy. Maybe the, the action of being persecuted actually makes you more godly and actually advances the very kingdom of God that we are so fired up about. It may come with a harsh reality towards us, but it's for God's glory. So that's part two, verses 5 through 35. And now part three, verses 36 through 45 of Daniel 11. The final scene of this chapter shifts one more time, focusing on the Antichrist. The focus is on the spiritual forces aligning themselves against the people of God. Many answers have been given to who the Antichrist is. If you look over at Daniel chapter 12, though, in verse 8, it says, I couldn't understand. So I said, Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? Daniel didn't have a clear picture of what this Antichrist would look like. People guess again and again about who the Antichrist is going to be. John Calvin predicted, or John Calvin said that it would be Rome. I've heard other people say that it's the Pope, or other people say it's a rising kingdom. We've all read books that have predicted this or have given examples of this. We just don't clearly know, and so we want to approach this text with humility, but also realize who exactly we're talking about here. There are characteristics of who the, the Antichrist is. Clearly, he aims, first we can see some characteristics, clearly the Antichrist will aim for self-rule or total sovereignty, mocking God with his attempt for self-rule. Look at verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god. And you can almost hear the snake in the garden, can't you? Whispering, take and eat, for you can be like God. We also see in verse 36 that he would be a blasphemous and cruel person. His 
personality would be one who is blasphemous and also incredibly cruel. It says there in the text, he will speak monstrous things against the God of gods. He will prosper until the indignation is finished, for that which is decreed will be done, and he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the desire of women. He's blasphemous. He's cruel. He's uncompassionate. He's inhumane. And also in verse 38, his doctrine is one that puts power above truth. He honors force above all. He, he honors tension more than anything else. He wants power over purpose. You've, you've heard of the golden rule, I think. Those who have the gold make the rules. That's the kind of rule he's going to live by. But don't overlook verse 45. Desperately don't overlook verse 45, though. He's been purely described as mighty. His end will come in a really anticlimactic way. God will triumph even over him. And so Daniel is showing this, this onset of what's going to happen. Though it, there will be great persecution, though there will be one who will rise up against God's people at the end, keep your hope before your eyes because even he will be brought down in humility. This whole chapter serves as a reminder to us that the great conflict that you and I are engaged with, we might be able to name it with things that we'll see, what we can see, but the great conflict that you are actually encountering is a spiritual battle. Some of you who are parents, you can identify faults with yourself or with those around you and even your kids, but you know underneath those worldly sins that there's a spiritual battle going on there. And that's where your prayers actually go to more often than not. This is, this is the same emphasis that God is giving Daniel, seeing what's behind the curtain and knowing that God is in control of that too. So this text reminds us to pray, to keep watch over our hearts, and to trust in God's great deliverance. But fifth and finally, we see that God comforts his people in times of trial. Fifth and finally from this text, and most explicitly in chapter 12, we see that God comforts his people in times of trial. Let me read to you the first four chapters of chapter, or first, first four verses. That would have been a long one. First four verses of chapter 12. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall deliver everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And so many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book. Until the time of the end, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. Well, here we are reminded that the Lord is the protector. The Lord is the protector of his people. In this long-winded description of God's people in their future, though they are pressured by enemies from chapter 11, it's clear here in chapter 12 that the Lord will carry them through to the end. Christian, be assured that no matter how difficult the times are for your life and may become for your own life, the Lord is the protector of His people. No matter what you face, 
you're not facing something that the protector can't carry you through. The shape of this text is typical of Old Testament prophets. They forecast trials for God's people, but simultaneously give God's people great comfort. And this comfort isn't to balm people's brokenness, but to actually fuel their endurance through persecution. You know, maybe you've been through something that is physically or emotional, emotionally challenging. If you were convinced or shown or told by someone else that you would get through it, you would persist through it, you would wind up on the other side victorious, that would fuel you in a certain way, wouldn't it? That, that would make you show up again and again towards that relationship or towards that job or even towards your own child where the Lord carries his people and protects his people greatly. The vision's end brings us incredible comfort. And it's not to balm our brokenness, but to fuel our endurance. Terror here is followed by comfort. Michael will be with his people, it says in verse 1. Michael the archangel, whose name means who is like God, reminds us of the very power of God. His power in protecting his own people. For us, Today, a sign and a symbol of the very person of Christ Jesus who protects us, who guides us, who's interceding right now for you. We do not live in an impersonal universe because we know that God is personally involved. He's not only involved in the things we can't see, but he's involved in the things we can. We think of all the things that God was over and working through in Daniel's own life. And then we see again and again in visions where God kind of pulls back the curtain a little bit and shows Daniel all that's going on in the world that he can't see. It's amazing to me to see how the Bible continually interacts with itself. We call this cross-referencing, where there are passages that are picked up here and then other parts of the Bible and vice versa. More amazing is how Jesus helps us by interpreting Difficult passages of scriptures from the Gospels. If you think forward to Matthew 24, Jesus uses language from Daniel 12 to describe the coming destruction of the very temple that was built up in Jerusalem. If you look at Matthew 24, verses 22 through 24, the Lord Jesus talks about his own people, the elect, the chosen people being what? Spared, being protected, being rescued. The book of life, as he calls it, the book of the living contains those who, who survive these threatening tribulations and judgments. It's amazing for me to remember that in the book of Revelation, that the book of life is shut right now. And there will be a time when it will be opened. But right now, the Lord knows who is his. The Lord knows who he will carry through. The Lord knows how he will carry through those people who he will carry through. And the people of the Old Testament weren't wondering about this as well. We often think that people in the Old Testament were just left in the dark of the things that we easily see in the New Testament, right? You and I might think that the Lord's return, and conceptually we understand it. We, we can identify it with passages in Scriptures, or even the resurrection that you and, all, you and I will go through in 1 Corinthians 15. We look at that and go, that's truth. Paul wrote what was inspired. I look forward to the day where my body will no longer supernaturally be in the grave. But the people of old also had the same instruction in this own text. Our resurrection that is talked about in 1 Corinthians 15 is also talked about here in verse 2 of chapter 12. In many of those it says, 
who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake to what? To everlasting life. Verse 3 describes the blessedness that awaits the faithful. Verse 1 says that God will protect his faithful. Verse 2 says that God will raise the faithful to, from their death, from their persecution to new life. And then verse 3, it says that the Lord will bless his faithful forever. Here we have the ambition of all of a Christian's heart. It's not in our death, but in our resurrection. Our ambition as Christians is in the transformation that will be done for us by the person of Jesus. Well, in conclusion, our large, sweeping passage shows us that God is in control of everything. And there's more going on than meets the eye. And we might look around and go, I certainly hope so. And for Daniel, what awaits, what awaits God's people are intense trials. They can count on persecution to come. They can count on their lives being at stake. Some things we can see and some things we cannot. But on the other side is a growing, intense moment of hope for God's people. And these three promising actions, God's protection, God's raising, and God's blessing, this gives us great hope in all the life that we live. In verse 4, Daniel is told to carefully preserve this revelation for the sake of God's people. Look at verse 4 in, as to close. As for you, Daniel, conceal these things and seal up the book until the end of time. This verse shows us that God is concerned about us. God is concerned that we personally benefit from this message of hope, that our lives would be impacted by Daniel 11 and 12 and all of Daniel. God is concerned that we benefit from this message of hope. And so he tells Daniel to close it up and preserve it so that other people can hear about it. He says, Daniel, be very careful and keep this word safe so that at the end people can have the same hope that you have seen. God blessed Daniel through this revelation. God blessed Israel by hearing and receiving these words. And God blesses us by hearing these words and being changed by them. God gives his people hope from his revelation. He reveals himself. That's what it looks like to go to the word and to seek the face of God. It's to seek the object of our faith, not, not merely the practice of our faith. Sure, we want to do things that, that show God's glory and reveal God's glory to the end of the earth, but we also, we also want to see God. And think of all the characteristics of God that we've seen in this passage. Over the next several weeks as life unfolds, you and I will be bombarded to trust this or that. You and I will be encouraged to have hope because of the things we can see and this and that. But in the grace of God, the object of hope has already been provided for us. In God's love, he sent his son Jesus to, to live as you and I should have lived, to suffer as we should have suffered, to die under the very wrath and judgment that you and I should have died under. He was buried and three days later, he rose from the grave as in part a testimony to what will happen to us. After we die, we will be raised and we will be in the presence of the Son. Jesus then ascended to the heavens where he now intercedes for his people, rules over all of his people's lives. And even in the things that we can see and can't see, he is the master of all of that. And so my question is for you, do you trust 
in this Jesus? Do you trust in what was revealed to Daniel, the object of your faith being the very God himself? Do you trust as you're being called to trust? Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. May Christ Jesus, the Savior of sinners, be the object of your faith in the hope of our days. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, may the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we thank you for these words and we ask you now to nourish us by them spiritually for our sake. And we pray this in the name and in the power of Jesus. Amen.